Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, a contributing editor at Prospect Magazine, and today I'm joined by the political economist and podcasting professor, Helen Thompson who I'm going to be asking about the long backstory to the war in Ukraine and whether the West can hold together through what could be a very protracted saga. Helen will be familiar to many of you from the Hit Talking Politics podcast, which has just this month finished the hit six-year run. And she's just written a new book about where the world stands called Disorder, which I reviewed for the new issue of our magazine. So welcome, Helen. What terrifying times we're in. Let's start inevitably with Ukraine, which most of us instinctively understand as a story about aggressive authoritarianism versus democracy. And while not necessarily saying that's wrong, you are keen to highlight that this is a story about energy too, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a long story about the consequences of the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991 and the way in which that happened, which was extraordinarily peaceful, and some of the consequences that had for Russia. And at the centre of this in energy terms is the fact that from the 19... Well, really from the late 1950s, building up through oil in the 60s and gas from the 1970s, that an energy relationship emerged between the Soviet Union, the Central European countries, and probably most consequentially, West Germany. And this involved pipelines, that oil and gas pipelines, that took Soviet oil and gas exports to European countries through the Soviet Union, out through Poland, um, and ultimately arriving um, amongst other places, but most consequentially in, in West Germany. So when the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991 and was replaced by 15 independent republics, two of which were to the west of Russia, or actually more of them, but the consequences for the pipelines, two mattered, Ukraine and um, Belarus, these pipelines were now going through independent countries. And obviously where Ukraine was concerned, that was particularly consequential given the pretty complicated nature of Russian-Ukraine relations. So what we can see is is that even in the 1990s, so before Putin came to power, although albeit Putin came to power on the very last day of the 1990s, Russian governments 
didn't really like Russia's transit dependency on Ukraine as an independent state and were looking to find try to begin to find alternatives to it and that was primarily going to mean sending pipelines first under the Black Sea and then to the south and then from 2005 once the agreement was made with the German government to build the first Nord Stream pipeline under the Baltic Sea to the north and Putin basically spent when after he came to power two decades trying to take Ukraine out of the transit system for Russian gas and oil, and particularly Russian gas, certainly, altogether. He didn't succeed in that, but he very significantly reduced the transit of gas through Ukraine. And that had pretty severe consequences for the Ukrainian economy because Russia had to pay transit fees to Ukraine to use these pipelines. So the less gas that went through Ukraine, the poorer the Ukrainian the Ukrainian state was, and that had consequences for the overall Ukrainian economy. So we can see that there was a deliberate effort um, by Putin over a long period of time to weaken Ukraine's position by the transportation routes that Russian gas came into Europe post-dissolution post of the Soviet Union. So you have a kind of patient solution, which is like, let's very slowly build all these pipelines that go round Ukraine, which is the obvious route. And then you've got perhaps him snapping or an impatient solution which is well let's just grab those transit and control it that's the sort of strategic interest well i think maybe he's got to yeah this isn't this is i think this is an interesting question and in some sense under discussed question about what actually he is up to in ukraine at the moment because obviously if he were entirely successful in subordinating ukraine to russia i don't think that he's going to be i should say is that the problem goes away because if he could absorb the whole of Ukraine into Russia and do that without you know, facing permanent resistance from Ukrainians, then the pipeline situation goes back to the way that it was with the Soviet when it when it was mm. the when it was the the Soviet Union. It is also the case though, that these pipelines are in you know they're old; they're in quite a bad state of repair. And Putin was constantly grumbling, or more than grumbling, you know, commenting very aggressively on blaming the Ukrainians for the state of the, the pipelines. Um, but if it's the case, which I think it probably is, that Nord Stream 2, the second Nord Stream pipeline, isn't going, is finished, it's gone for, gone for good. And if there becomes, if there comes increasing pressure on the first Nord Stream pipeline for the Germans effectively to stop using that, um, then unless Putin's willing to give up entirely on selling gas into the European um, market, which I would suggest would be a problem from the European point of view um, too, despite what's been um, said, then he needs the pipelines to be working back again through Ukraine. And that probably means having to spend a lot of money on modernising them, as well as so, yeah, the fact you... that they would become a site of, uh, of the, of the uh, resistance for the Ukrainians. So you can basically see, I think, from what you've said there, that like, you know, both the diplomacy in terms of with Germany, will this big under the sea Nord Stream pipeline get switched back on or not? And then the kind of the, the, the desperation to control the Ukrainian thing, both point to a saga which could last a while. But one of your themes is that the gritty energy politics, and you're looking over a hundred year period in, in disorder, um, often trumps the ideological stuff. So, you know, Western Europe, despite being ideologically opposed to the Soviet Union, ends up buying its 
oil because America's not safeguarding it in the Middle East anymore. But in this crisis, we've seen something a bit different, haven't we? You've mentioned that, like, presumably extremely expensive to build Nord Stream 2 pipeline from Russia straight to Germany. It was the reason why Angela Merkel, we thought, always was keen to kind of keep friendly with Putin to some extent. And yet the new Chancellor, Scholz, has turned it off straight away or stopped it turning on straight away, hasn't he? Well, it's not. It had. A, it actually wasn't in a position where it could start because it had, there'd been a decision that it required further certification, which had come last November. Um, but it was. It was built. It was it, at any point in which that certification did occur, it could have started um, transporting um, gas. I mean, I think what has become clear in terms of Schultz's decision is is that he was under pretty enormous pressure from the Biden administration, and that when he went to um, that he and uh, he was with Biden and somewhere I can't actually remember whether they were where that they were meeting. It was either in late January or in early February. I can't remember now. It was sometime this year, certainly before the um, invasion. And Biden pretty much in front of him told him that if Russia was making a serious invasion of Ukraine, then Nord Stream would have Nord Stream Two would have to go. Um, so I'm not sure that he, how much choice that he had. Having said that, a lot of the things that went with that announcement, or in the 24 hours around it, suggest a massive volt force in German policy. I mean, I would suggest that German foreign policy for the last 50 years, since Ostpolitik in the 1970s, in which these this energy relationship was in some sense seen as the material foundation of that Ostpolitik has shattered. So in that sense, we are living in a different world. I don't think we're going to go back in Europe to a situation where the means of transportation of Russian gas can go back to being deemed an unpolitical question in Germany. I think that's gone completely. The question of how far and how fast European countries can and their gas dependency on Russia, I think, is a is a whole other matter. I mean, in, in Germany's case alone, there are no liquid natural gas ports at the moment. Dutch production is you know, in decline. And that means that, that Germany's got to build ports in, in order to start importing from whether it's the United States or from um, Qatar. And then you've got to bear in mind that there has been, in the last year or so, a big in some sense, external gas shock for gas markets, world gas markets, but for Europe in particular, because there's been such a sharp increase in Chinese demand for natural um, gas. So already, even before we got to the Russian invasion, there was growing competition between European countries and China, and in particular, and Asian countries in general, um, for seaborne natural um, gas, which was forcing the prices um, up. So there isn't any way in which um, you can have a big increase in European demand for seaborne liquid natural gas now to replace Russian gas um, without um, another acceleration in, in prices. And then European governments have got to be willing to stomach that in terms of what the consequences are, not only just for heating, I know we're coming to the end of the winter, but also for electricity um, generation, where most European countries, as we know, are already facing very high electricity um, prices that are certainly causing a great deal of concern in Germany about Germany's manufacturing competitiveness. I mean, e even in the UK, where we're at one remove, people on the radio are talking about, you know, a hit to average household incomes of 5 or 10% mm. just from the increasing 
cost of gas. So, I mean, that brings me on to the question of whether we're going to be able to stick with this remarkable transformation you've talked about in German foreign policy. Like, we've had this crisis, this moment of, like, like what looks like, you know, very striking Western resolve compared to what we've seen in the last few years against Putin. But, like, do you think it's going to hold out if people are, you know, if voters in all these d- democratic countries are suddenly, um, like, uh, being hit with a 5-10% hit to their incomes? I think that this is a this is a, a pretty big question. It's an open um, question. I think there's two different things going on here with the with the price rises. There's the oil question, and there's been actually quite a lot of you know volatility. I mean, oil prices are very high, but within that them being high, there's been a lot of volatility. I mean, I think at one point they've been up at about 135 dollars a barrel this week in the European market, and then. The lower about 105. That's an enormous amount of volatility in the course of um, the course of one week. And what we know with oil is, is at a certain point, um, it, which we're probably already there. I would suggest is is that we get demand destruction. So simply, oil becomes too expensive um, for people to carry on buying it, both individuals um, and corporations that need it at the same rate in which that they've previously um, been um, buying it. I think gas is a different issue. We haven't really experienced a, in any sustained period of time a gas shock, I think, before in terms of um, prices, not on the magnitude of what's happening um, now. And because of gas's role in electricity, um, this means that it isn't just you know heating prices that would go up, gas itself that would go up, prices that would go up. And as I said, there's the demand is should be falling for that soon but the electricity demand isn't isn't going to fall and these are big increases to to ask um citizens to to um endure uh, and to say that it's necessary in order to protect ukrainian independence may go so far um but i i i wouldn't if i were um a politician bet on you know endless sacrifices being willing people being willing to make um, for their electricity bills for the sake of Ukrainian independence. And the other thing, of course, um, uh, that, that I take from what you've written is that um, that it could lead to all kinds of alliances elsewhere. Presumably it could, and maybe already is, throwing us, when I say us, I mean you know Europe, into other sources of energy with people we might rather not do business with if all else were equal. Um, and at the same time, at the Russian side of things, if we um, do manage to wean ourselves off Russian gas, they've got a pipeline into China that you talk about, haven't they? So we could see quite a big shaking of the kaleidoscope here. Yeah, I mean, I think that the Russian bet will be, or Putin's bet, perhaps we should say, would be that Russia can double down on the the. China energy relationship, both in terms of selling oil and in selling um, gas. There's the Power Siberia um, pipeline, which was the first pipeline out of Russia that went eastwards um, into China rather than westwards um, into Europe. The the Russians hadn't had an Asian, an eastern orientated um, pipeline before. There was already talk about building Power Siberia um, two. There is there are advantages to China, um, for at least in principle, for strengthening the energy its energy relationship with um, Russia because um, 
oil and gas that comes from Russia into China is much less vulnerable to a potential American naval blockade, particularly in the in the Malacca Strait, than oil that comes um, from the the Persian Gulf. Um, though in some sense the Chinese have been trying to hedge that problem um, with the with the Belt and Road um, strategy. I think if we swing back though to to Europe, um, we can say two things. I think that will be the consequences of a bid to end Russian gas dependency in in terms of the geopolitics of it. The first will be the interest in the um, getting Iranian gas back onto the market at higher volume uh, and mm-hmm. Iranian oil for that matter, which is obviously dependent upon um, a new nuclear deal. The issue there, of course, is, is that in some sense, the dirty secret of the first Russian, sorry, of the first nuclear deal was that it was an important, in very important way, something that Putin helped to negotiate. And it's pretty clear by what's come out over the last few days that the same is, was going to be true of this one. Um, so there's a, you know, there's a kind of strange paradox there where you try, you want Iranian gas and oil back um, at higher volume on the market. Um, because you don't want to deal with Russia, but you're actually dependent upon Russia in order to get that nuclear deal in place that will make it possible to remove the sanctions um, on Iran. I think the other thing that's going to come to the fore, though, is the East Mediterranean question, because in the East Mediterranean, there's been gas discoveries since around 2010, quite a lot, including around Cyprus, but also further south. This has basically involved quite a lot of the East Europe Mediterranean countries, including Israel, um, but not Turkey. And Turkey, if you listen to anything that Erdogan has to say on the subject um, of these gas discoveries, I mean, he sounds like, you know, should we just say, listen to an Erdogan speech about um, Turkish ambitions in the Eastern Mediterranean in relation to energy is is quite hair-raising. It, it, it's, it's more... It's more aggressive, even, I would suggest, than some of the speeches that Putin's been making about Ukraine of late in terms of its revisionism. And so what we can see really from 2018, I would suggest in particular, is a, is a set of tensions in the eastern Mediterranean, which France under Macron was very keen to involve France in. Um, French-Turkish relations became pretty confrontational. Um, the French and the Germans weren't on the same page about that as with each other. The Germans were much keener on trying to um, reach an accommodation um, with Erdogan about these um, issues and in some sense, I think, to try to keep the um, the agreement that was negotiated in 2016 to keep refugees in Turkey um, in place. Um, so anything that involves thinking that East Mediterranean gas is the medium-term remedy for breaking Russian gas dependency completely opens up the question of how much unity there is within the European Union and the West in general about Turkey. Um, and I'd suggest there's, there's not a great deal of unity there. And we've not even talked, have we, about the big green climate transition which needs to be going on um, in parallel. How far does that complicate uh, the attempt to kind of, um, you know, find a way out of this? Well, on the one hand, obviously, it helps in the sense of you can say that, look, all this shows is that there are considerable problems to foreign energy dependency uh, and that this constrains us in ways that we in the West don't want to be constrained. 
um, and that if we were you know, using uh, much more solar and wind for generating electricity and a lot less um, Russian gas, that we wouldn't be in some of these, we wouldn't have some of these messes um, to deal um, with. The two problems are, though, first of all, that um, at the moment, the capacity uh, of any country quickly to change the way in which electricity um, is produced, so to bump up the proportion of renewables and get down the proportion of, of gas, or in, and in, in Germany's case, um, coal too, really depends upon a technological breakthrough on storage that isn't there yet. I mean, I, I don't doubt that in time it might come, but it's, it, it, it can't be bet upon as a... Nobody can know when it's going to come. That's what I'm. That, that's what I'm trying to to say there. So that makes actually having a, a strategy about how to, um, when you can rely on it being there, really quite difficult. And then the second thing I would say is is that green energy isn't going to change or isn't going to eliminate geopolitics from energy. I mean, it's certainly the case um, that it's not going to be dependent upon the accidental di distribution you know like of ancient sunlight stored in whichever part of the world it is and as we know plenty of it turned out to be in the middle east and and in um, russia but the infrastructure around that being able to use solar and wind energy is dependent upon metals and those metals and the production of those metals and the supply chains around those metals are pretty much entirely dominated at the moment by china so in order to have energy dependency in the green energy world, you also got to have metal independence too. And, and, and we're, a long, we're a long, long way. Any Western country is a long, long way, massive, miles and miles away removed um, from that um, at the, the moment. Now, that still might be a more palatable, perhaps, geopolitics than what we've got at the moment in Europe in relation to um, oil and gas where Russia's um, concerned. But it's not it's going to be anything but a geopolitics free energy world. So when you look forward, if you try and put these things together, despite the moment of Western unity that we've got just now, you've got all these pressures on Europe in terms of domestic politics. You've got like pressures to form new relationships with Iran or whatever. You've got the opening there for a kind of Eurasian um, alignment between Russia and China, and China looking very well placed strategically in terms of the new green energy future. So if you put all that together, do you, does it sort of make you think, and I know you don't like the phrase like liberal world order, but mm. the kind of Western-led world order is is kind of for it? Yeah, but, but I, in a way, yes. But what I would say is I, I think that really where energy was concerned, um, that Western-led, if we want to call it liberal international order, ended in the 1970s. I mean, in the, the bit why I don't think it was very liberal um, was it was the product um, in significant part of the, Euro the, I was going to say the European empires, but let's just say the British and French um, empires um, in the Middle East and particularly the, the ability of Britain to maintain itself as an imperial power in the Middle East with a military capacity or capability until it withdrew from east of Suez you know, in the at the end of the 1960s beginning of the um, 1970s and that what the 1970s were really about where energy was concerned was a really huge geopolitical shift both because 
Britain withdrew. It was the end of the. It was the. It was the end of the European, um, the age of European empires. A final end of it. Britain withdrew. When Britain withdrew from the, the the Middle East, but also because that happened around the same time that the United States stopped being the world's largest oil producer, um, and the Soviet Union became the world's largest oil producer, and crucially, the rising oil producer by some distance, and not least because of the amount of reserves that it had, was Saudi Arabia. Um, and that you know, there was a, a shift uh, away from the West, uh, which I think was disguised in lots of ways by the ways um, in which on the financial side that American power became more, in some sense, more dominant from the 1970s, that the world of, the, of international finance that emerged out of the 1970s was a very much an American-dominated one. But... The energy world was anything but, um, and that mm. you know, that that's the decade which really entrenches European dependency on then Soviet um, oil and gas, and it's the decade in which it's very clear how difficult it is for the United States to exercise power in the Middle East and in any sense replace Britain's position there. And it starts off the decade thinking, I mean, this is like the Nixon administration starting off thinking. The United States can rely on Saudi Arabia and Iran to try to sort of police the Middle East for it. But as we know, by the end of the 1970s, there's been a revolution in Iran. The Ayatollah's regime is in place and the United States and, and, and Iran are enemies. Um, and you know, most things that the Americans have tried to do in the Middle East since then have been a mess uh, in terms of their uh, in terms of their consequences. And they've come at the cost of many, many, many hundreds of thousands of lives at times, as we know. So I, I think that if we look at the international order through the energy lens rather than anything else, is the the West's you know position was was gone fifty years ago. Right. Okay. So so things might be coming unstuck, but they've been unstuck for a for a while. I mean, there's so much in your in your book about the global monetary system and all of it, all, all the rest of it, and the European Union. We haven't got time probably to go into all of it but you're talking about the 1970s there and you've got this phrase in this kind of very enjoyable section of the book where you're talking about what you call democratic excess and aristocratic excess am i right i mean could you explain that for our listeners am i right that the if there was an era of democratic excess that might have been the 70s that you're talking about yeah basically i got this i took this idea from the um ancient historian like um polybius and he had the notion when he was thinking about, he was actually writing in, in uh, this history about the, the rise of Rome uh, and was in some sense foreseeing its end, its eventual end. And he had the idea that all forms of government decay in time, you know, that they, in some sense, they rise and that they fall. And if you say, if you want to explain the fall, you take the form of government and in, let's just say the democracy as a as a form of government and you you ask what internally because it, it could the decay could be brought about by external factors but what internally would bring about its end um and the answer would be too much democracy so democratic excess if you look at mm. aristocracy and you say well how do aristocracies come to an end aristocratic excess too much of it um so if you for instance i think that if you want an example of like how we could understand that in practice. I don't think anybody would have too much difficulty in thinking that Ancien Regime France 
which I know was a monarchy, but obviously had a, a strong aristocratic element to it, that there was an excess that brought, played its part in, in, in bringing the Ancien Régime in France to an end. So I started from the notion that if you think about representative democracy, i.e. I, not the kind of democracy that um, Polybius was thinking about in um, Athens, that actually representative democracy combines something that's democratic, i.e., that citizens all get to vote uh, and all get to participate in the democracy and something that's more aristocratic, i.e. government of the few, because they choose representatives. There's you know, a small number of, of representatives. So I took the idea that from that, that actually in representative democracy that has a propensity both to democratic excess, i.e. too much democracy, and a propensity to aristocratic excess. I actually think it's got a stronger propensity to aristocratic excess than it's got to democratic excess. If we skip on to the 1970s, there was clearly a whole line of argument, um, sometimes made actually in the language of democratic excess, that the problem of the 1970s was that too many demands were being placed on democratic governments, that governments were always having to spend too much money to appease this group and that group and particularly to concede wage increases to the trade unions and so this idea took hold in the 1970s I think particularly on the right that in some sense the disease of democratic government was inflation that democratic democracies just had a propensity to produce a lot of it and obviously when people look for some historical origins to that story, they could look back to the Weimar Republic and what and, and what happened there um, in the uh, in the hyper with the hyperinflation in the in the nineteen twenties. Now, I think it's certainly the case that you can make an argument um, that this thesis about democratic excess was very influential. I mean, about that about the seventies. Mm. I mean, I think if you think about the whole idea of central bank independence, which there was a big push for in places where it didn't already exist, like in, in West Germany in the latter part of the 80s and into the 90s, and that this was written you know, into the Maastricht Treaty, that whole um, idea of central bank independence rested on the idea that you didn't want democratic politicians making decisions about monetary policy because mm. the likely outcome would be higher inflation. So that you actually wanted central bankers who were immune from democratic passions to be making these decisions because they would knew that they needed to value price stability, low inflation um, above any other temptations um, in in some um, sense. So I think it was a very influential thesis. I think it's part of the way in which central bank independence became part of the political world and the way in which the euro came about. But I also think it's somewhat erroneous in the sense that I don't think it was the case that inflation, it was democracies in the 1970s that was producing the inflation problem. And I don't think it's the case that democracies really struggled in the end with the inflation um, problem, that actually they proved, like take Mrs Thatcher's government in Britain, you could have a government that was came into office, was pretty committed to fighting inflation, made a, bit, made a big hash of it to begin with, but it didn't find itself um, in a position where the country was ungovernable. I mean, you could say it was too governable in the early 1980s. Now, I don't think you can understand inflation in the 1970s without putting at its centre the energy shocks that took place during that um, time. And so I think that... But, but if, if I read you right, you feel like we've more recently been in an era of aristocratic 
mm. excess, both in terms of big business and big wealth, but also kind of technocratic elites thinking they know best for the people. And that's that's the kind of sense in which it's an aristocratic rather than a democratic age in which we're going into this new energy shock. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things that are true that come out of the 70s um, where aristocratic excess is, um, for, for, is, is concerned. The first of them is the the increase in economic inequality in quite a number of Western um, countries, the ways in which that is reinforced by the dynamics of international finance and outsourcing and manufacturing production to China. And I think that we can see that in fairly general terms, that finance starts to have more political influence in Western democracies than it had done during the 1950s and the 1960s. And there were different manifestations of that. It becomes harder to tax the super rich because of the way in which tax havens re-emerge from the 1970s onwards. uh, Let's leave it at that. So that's one thing that's going on. The second thing, as you say, Tom, is is um, that there's a move towards uh, a more technocratic form of politics. And I would actually tie that very directly because I think it's the clearest example of it to the central bank independence issue and the way in which monetary policy and monetary decisions are taken out of democratic um, politics and say, actually, we can't trust democratic politicians to do this. We've got to get central bankers to do it. Um, because they, as I say, not subject to the democratic temptation. But what that was doing was saying that the only thing that actually mattered in macroeconomic policy in the end altogether um, was low inflation, that we can't have any kind of democratic political contest about that. And I think that what ended up as a result of that is, is that more and more bits of macroeconomic policy more generally stopped being contested too and that what we now find ourselves in is in a world in which inflation is back and it's not back because of democratic excess quite clearly it's back because of the energy situation um, again but the choices that now have to be made about how to deal with that energy inflation are being are, in the, are effectively in the hands of central banks when actually mm. I, I think it would actually be quite important to have some open democratic political discussion about how to manage these energy, this energy inflation problem because it has very profound distributional consequences and it absolutely has profound distributional consequences when this energy inflation is coexisting with net zero um, 2050 so commitments. So, I mean, it's, it's almost like um, who elected the bankers could well be the question of the coming decade do you think well yeah i mean it just seems to me that you can say that make a case maybe that um that that there's a case that that central bank independent central banks are are better capable of managing the complexity of the monetary issues and democratic politicians would be and i'm sure in a technical sense that they're going to understand some of the 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 issues involved better than democratically elected politicians. But what you can't get away from, I think, is is that the fact that the decisions that they make will have distributional consequences. Some people will benefit from them, some people will lose from them. And particularly given that judgments have got to be made 
in some sense about how much energy inflation to accommodate precisely because higher fossil fuel energy prices are necessary in order to incentivize moving to greener forms of um, energy. I think if this just is a monetary question and is not treated as a political question, um, then we're going to get into difficulties. Fascinating that it is. I think we might have to call time on the discussion of the themes of the of the book there, just because we're we're getting timed um, out. There's so much more in it, particularly about the European Union mm. and, and the ways that does and doesn't work, which um, I'd encourage listeners to read. Um, but um, before you go, Helen, as we're on a podcast, I just wanted to ask you about your experience of podcasting for the last six years. I mean, you spent decades writing articles and journals and for academic and, uh, and learned uh, audiences and then suddenly with talking politics you've got one of your major commitments where the talking is the point how did you how did you find that how did you get used to it and what did it do to your way of thinking well I think the first thing I say is I think it took me a while to get used to it I mean I, I don't think I actually to be honest really particularly enjoyed it that when we first started when we were doing election as it was called then in the run-up to the the 2015 general election I think that what I came to enjoy was the chance to talk to so many more people and communicate with so many more people than is possible, at all possible, when you're writing academic um, articles only, and to find that there was an audience for talking about politics, not, I would say, in an academic way, but certainly in a way of trying to bring to bear upon the conversation knowledge acquired as an academic that there was an audience was really gratifying and quite moving I would say I still find that when I read what people have said since talking politics has ended or what they said when the announcement was first made and to think that all of us who were doing it were in some sense invited into so many people's lives on a regular basis and they listened to what we had to say I mean I, I think that the well as I, said, I think I'll always feel some a sense of humility in the face of that I would also say though that it, I think it made me a, a better academic uh, it made me have to think about more things than I would normally have done given the range of guests that we had on and the kind of topics that we were the range of topics that we were covering did you enjoy the sense it was a kind of conversation compared to if you're writing an academic paper you can kind of focus maybe a bit more on asking questions and less on saying here's the final word or, is, or, or do you think no I did enjoy the co- I did very much enjoy the, mm. the the conversation I like conversation I always like the back and forth um, of it of trying to listen to what somebody's saying and using that as a stimulant for oneself to think um, new things I, I would say I think there were times, particularly in 2019, during Brexit at its most you know, intense. So the sort of all the failed votes in Parliament, um, the parliamentary crisis of the autumn of you know like 2019, and then the run up to that general election, where I wouldn't particularly say that I enjoyed it in the sense that these were just like <laughs> so difficult questions. Um, and it was quite difficult to have something that had some distance from the the drama that everybody who was 
you know, living in this country at the time in some sense and at all engaged with the Brexit question was um, was going through because obviously one had one's own emotions and then you've got to stand back and then try and make some sense or at least have something to say about um, those events at the the same time from perhaps a, a longer perspective and that that was tough and I think it got tougher as that year went on. Yeah, and when we think about the coming and going of President Trump, the political rise and fall of Jeremy Corbyn, all of it on top, what a, what a six-year run it's been. But that's all from us uh, for now. So thank you so much, Helen, for joining us. Please, been a pleasure, Tom. If you're one of the many bereft Talking Politics listeners who've popped over to the Prospect interview to get your fix of Thompson, then do subscribe to us at Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. We can't promise Helen every week but we will attempt to delve into the big issues in some of the same sort of depth that you're used to with Helen. Helen's book, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, is just out with Oxford University Press, and you can also read my review by picking up the April issue of Prospect, or even better, going to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to take out a trial sub, which you can enjoy three issues for just £5. Goodbye, stay safe and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.